0: Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. My name is Harry and I'm your host. Today is the day, guys. We finish Barbarossa. This episode will cover the final week of the German Offensive and then we'll do an analysis of Barbarossa overall. And of course, this episode will not be the last in the podcast. I'll be making bonus episodes about specific parts of Barbarossa. Anyway, let's get into it. You'll hopefully remember that last episode, the Wehrmacht made its last desperate attempt at taking Moscow, as well as offensives against Leningrad and Rostov. The latter two had been completely stopped, and Soviet forces have begun an offensive against army groups north and south. In the center, progress had been painfully slow and come at a high cost. Meanwhile, the Red Army is assembling its forces for a large counteroffensive, which German commanders are oblivious to. Remaining German efforts in the center were focused around the 3rd Panzer Group and 4th Panzer Army, attempting to encircle Moscow from the north. In the southern sector, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army was attempting to encircle Soviet forces in and around Tula, and then encircle Moscow from the south, where they would meet up and form a ring. North of Moscow, the 3rd Panzer Group and 4th Panzer Army continued hammering away, each day resembling infantry more than tank forces. However, due to Soviet resistance, von Klug agreed to employ what was left of his 4th Army in an attack along the Moscow-Minsk Highway. Beginning on December 1st and involving the 57th Panzer Corps and 20th Army Corps, the attack immediately met with hard fighting near the town of Narofominsk. In addition to standard defenses, Soviet engineers had also laid up minefields with both anti-tank and anti-personnel mines. On the first day of fighting, these mines cost the 20th Panzer Division 10 tanks. The anti-personnel mines tended to be small and often improvised, but numerous. They contained enough explosive to blow a man's legs off while actually rarely killing. This was not on purpose, It's probably just an effort to uh, have more mines available, but uh, it probably terrified the German soldiers more than regular lethal mines, and these mines were densely packed. One stretch of road, no more than 120 meters long, over 140 mines were found. Clearing these mines was a lengthy and dangerous process. Despite this, the 57th Army Corps did achieve a healthy advance that first day, and the 20th Army Corps a less impressive but still significant advance to the north. Representing more or less the last of German strength, this attack did catch the Soviets off guard, coming to within 4 kilometers of Western Front Field Headquarters. But the Soviets had enough reserves to quickly transfer troops to problematic sectors, keeping up a consistent defense and preventing a breakthrough. This fact was lost on German commanders. Foreign Armies East, which was responsible for military intelligence on the Eastern Front, reported on December 2nd that, and I quote, the enemy has at present no accessible reserves available, unquote. And in one form or another, these sorts of assurances that the Red Army had to be out of manpower had been going around since the first weeks of the war, repeated with each major encirclement, and constantly disproved. They helped convince the higher-ups that victory was nearly at hand, and perhaps sprang from assumptions that the enemy shared Germany's crippling shortage of men. Another source of concern for German troops was the increasingly frequent appearance of foreign equipment in the Red Army. It should be noted that at this point, lend lease shipments were hardly a fraction of what they would become in the later years of the war, and that there was a lot more British equipment going to the USSR at this time than there was American equipment. While month-by-month statistics are unavailable, it would be reasonable to estimate that over 200 British medium and heavy tanks had made their way into Soviet hands by early December 1941 and perhaps 300 British and American planes. And these numbers were not large enough to play a decisive role in the battle. And actually, in truth, the Soviets had many complaints about British and American vehicles. The tanks were designed for very different conditions than the Soviet tanks had been, and they performed poorly in deep snow. And fighter combat on the Eastern Front tended to take place at a different altitude than the American and British fighters, so they had their own problems. On the other hand, when your opponent doesn't have any tanks or any planes, Anything will do in a pinch. And these Leninist vehicles, especially the tanks, will play a much larger role in the Soviet counteroffensive. When German forces came across these Leninist vehicles, it filled many with a deep sense of dread. Unlike their commanders, most regular German soldiers had gotten a sense of the massive depth of manpower that the USSR had to draw on. And the increasingly common sight of foreign vehicles indicated that even capturing major parts of Soviet industry might not be enough to force a conclusion if the Americans and British could just keep feeding the Soviets uh, tanks, planes, and guns. North of Moscow, Reinhardt's 3rd Panzer Group was seeing a modest success, while Hopner's 4th Panzer Group made little to no progress. This was largely because many units simply refused to attack anymore. On December 2nd, the 10th Panzer Division declared that it just couldn't attack due to the complete physical and psychological exhaustion of the troops." This is a critical and fascinating turn. Here, too, the morale of the German soldier, despite everything, had remained high, even in the face of mounting losses and difficult conditions. Even when optimism and patriotism were no longer sufficient, the belief that victory was in reach or had to be in reach motivated German troops to dutifully comply, to advance, to attack, to suffer the harsh winter. But for many units, this hope had completely given out, and they were simply refusing to do anything more. In the face of this mass refusal, Hoppner attempted to urge on his men to push just a little further, but the disappointing results of December 3rd convinced him that as things currently stood, the troops could not and would not continue. He informed Klug of the situation, a situation Klug himself was seeing with his own troops. That same day, Klug had told von Bock that the 4th Army could not maintain its positions and needed to withdraw. Bock resisted this, hoping that some breakthrough in the north would turn things around. However, Klug ordered his troops to withdraw to their positions as of December 1st, and Bock did not countermand this. Around Tula, Guderian planned to strike west, towards Tula, while the 43rd Army Corps under the 2nd Army would attack east. They would meet up and cut off Tula and all the Soviet forces within and around it, then Guderian could turn eastwards and threaten Moscow. The attack began on December 2nd, but was immediately on shaky ground. In concentrating sufficient forces to break through Soviet lines and form an encirclement, the flanks of both Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army and the 2nd Army were barely held. On December 3rd, despite a brutal snowstorm, the 4th Panzer Division seized the Moscow Tula Railroad, cutting off Tula's main source of supply. But this attack took everything Guderian had. And on the very next day, Soviet reinforcements began to arrive and began to hit Guderian's flanks, and he could do nothing but withdraw, giving up the positions he had purchased in blood. On December 4th, Bach ordered Reinhardt and Hopner to pause and gather their strength for another attack on December 6, but there was no plan for Klug's 4th army to join in. And on the 5th, Guderian finally went over to the defensive. Given that, Bach's plans relied on Panzer Group 3 and the 4th Panzer Army to swing all the way around in a single pincer motion to encircle Moscow, something that was impossible on its very face. In truth, Bach himself had no confidence in his own plan. In his December 4th letter to his wife, he admitted that, quote, The forces are no longer sufficient. The troops are completely finished. One can, of course, push them on, but then one day, there is nothing left. Simply put, this was offense for its own sake. This absurdist plan quickly dissolved. On December 5th, Hoppner held a meeting of the five corps he had at his disposal. Two had absolutely no offensive capability. The remaining three put together could provide just four divisions for an offensive. Further north, Reinhardt's 3rd Panzer Group was crumbling. Its largest subunit, Model's 41st Panzer Corps, reported on the 5th that it could attack no more. At the same time, the Soviet winter offensive was kicking off. The 31st and 29th Armies under Konev's Kalin Front attacked east and west of Kalin, smashing the defenses of the 9th Army north of Reinhardt. That same day, Zhukov's Western Front began its attacks against Reinhardt's overextended forces, although this was just a taste of what was to begin on the 6th. In the face of these attacks, as well as those against Guderian near Tula, German forces finally suspended their last delusional offensive plans. As such, Operation Barbarossa is regarded as ending on December 5th, 1941. Even still, it was not until December 8th that Hitler would issue Fuhrer Directive 39, ordering the Eastern Front to go over to the defensive. But as with many things on the Eastern Front, the order only made formal what the Soviets had already compelled. On the other two fronts, I can finish this in a few sentences and we'll get to the analysis. In the north, Soviet attacks continued to grind away at German units near Tikvin, slowly crawling forward with heavy casualties on both sides. In the south, Soviet forces pushed Army Group South back from Rostov to the city of Taganrog, about 70 kilometers from Rostov. The final tally for Operation Barbarossa, from June 22 to December 5, ran to over 1 million casualties for the Axis, in addition to somewhere in the vicinity of 3,000 tanks lost and a similar number of aircraft lost. Germany withstood the vast majority of these casualties. And of total Axis casualties, between a fourth to a third of them were permanent casualties. That is to say, they were killed in action, missing in action, or injured so badly they could not continue to serve. On the other side, the Red Army withstood an astounding 5 million casualties, also losing a staggering 20,000 planes and tanks. Of that 5 million, almost 70% were unrecoverable. Almost 3 million Soviet soldiers were taken prisoner, comprising a majority of both total casualties and a vast majority of permanent casualties. How do I even begin to analyze something as large as Operation Barbarossa in the time I have left? Well, let's start by asking the big question. Could Barbarossa have succeeded? Well, no, not in its original plan. Occupying the AA line, which again, would have entailed occupying pretty much all of European Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Eastern Poland and the Baltic states would simply not have been possible. This plan was premised on vast underestimations about both the quantity and quality of Soviet forces as well as making the assumption that the Soviet state would more or less collapse once German tanks rolled across the border. Interestingly, even if Germany had managed to occupy the AA line, Soviet resistance likely wouldn't have totally ended. Certainly, continued Soviet resistance would have been far, far weaker, but the areas east of the AA line held about 15% of pre-war Soviet industry, and a disproportionate percentage of Soviet heavy and military industries. Some of the more realistic German reports actually predicted long-term guerrilla warfare, even if Germany had been successful in occupying the much-vaunted AA line. Another interesting question is how German commanders, largely professional and skilled military men, were able to convince themselves that such a tremendous undertaking was not only possible, but in fact would be easy. One major factor here was the astonishing German success in France. Many German officers had severely doubted that Manstein's plan for a rapid armored thrust through the Ardennes to encircle French and British troops was viable or wouldn't end in disaster. But through ingenuity, surprise, skill, and a healthy dose of luck, Manstein's plan succeeded, knocking France out of the war in less than two months. Following this, many officers were brought over to a steadfast belief that Germany could take on and defeat anyone it wanted. Those who kept their head on straight were solidly in the minority and knew to keep their mouths shut if they wanted to keep getting promotions. As it pertains to the Soviet Union, Nazi racial ideology and political propaganda strongly pushed that the Soviet government was highly unpopular and weak, vulnerable to collapse at the slightest provocation, and that its population was made up of Slavs who were inferior, ruled by Jews who were inferior, and therefore would be easy to take down. In addition, many German officers drew on their memories of service against Russia in the First World War. The Russian army then was weak, rather unskilled, rather poorly equipped, and had large groups of ethnic minorities who were apathetic or even hostile to the empire, for good reason. And most German officers assumed that the same would hold true. For the sake of completeness, I should acknowledge that German assumptions about the USSR were not totally without merit or without logic. German intelligence observed correctly one of the few things they observed correctly, how Stalin had eviscerated the high command in the late 1930s, as well as the exceedingly poor performance of the Red Army during the Winter War, less than two years before Barbarossa. From this, they correctly assumed that the Soviet military was in a very weak place. Moreover, we have to remember that there was strategic time pressure at play here. Conquering the Soviet Union was seen as necessary to convince the UK to make peace before the US could enter the war and it was also seen as necessary to secure the eastern flank of the Reich and to acquire the resources needed to wage continental wars of the sort that Hitler was hoping to wage. With the Soviet military building up rapidly and German power at a relative peak in 1941, summer 1941 was almost certainly the most optimal time to attack. As for whether Germany could have gone further than they did in real life, Uh, Yes, that's quite likely. Uh, Obviously, they could have gotten one footstep closer, but in terms of many kilometers further, yes, they probably could have done that. Uh, German generals, one of their greatest mistakes was that German generals consistently opted to destroy Soviet forces rather than take ground when the choice was available. This was not a simple or obviously incorrect decision to them, and it was something that the Germans argued with each other about before and during Barbarossa, and of course the, the internet has taken up the argument since then. The argument for prioritizing the destruction of the Red Army was a reasonable belief that if the Soviet military could be destroyed, then occupying the land would be easy. It'd be a hike at that point. This strategy would be most effective against an enemy who cannot quickly replace their losses, and/or if the enemy holds relatively small amounts of territory, so that by the time you have, uh, by the time they have replaced their losses, you've already conquered or occupied most of their country, and so they can't really do anything. We have to surrender. This is largely what happened to France. France could have theoretically mustered more troops, but by the time that would have happened. The Germans had already taken the most economically and uh, population heavy parts of France and they had to surrender. On the other hand, the argument for taking land or strictly destroying the military was premised on the belief that it was more important to deny the enemy the resources and industry necessary to continue waging war rather than to simply uh, kill and capture soldiers. It is essentially a matter of cutting off the enemy at the source. And this strategy is designed for use against an enemy that can quickly replace their losses and so seeks to deny them the ability to arm and equip further forces. Against the USSR, the second strategy was very likely much better. The decision to first destroy the Red Army was at least partly premised on poor military intelligence that underestimated the size of the Red Army and more significantly the ability of the Red Army to quickly raise and train new units. So many German generals and high command staff expected that once they destroyed the first echelon of Soviet forces, they would be able to advance through most of the USSR, most of the European USSR, with rather minimal resistance. Instead, after dedicating much of their forces to destroy large Soviet pockets, they found themselves meeting large Soviet reserve armies that slowed their advance at critical moments and contributed to their eventual failure. But I don't mean as some sort of binary. Say that there was uh, two diametrically opposed choices between uh, tightly controlling and destroying these pockets and kind of ignoring them. Everyone agreed that you needed to contain the pockets, but the disagreement was how many forces to use and whether they should deploy the armored and motorized forces for this task as opposed to having those forces continue with the attack. Uh, But the situation gets even more complicated. Because the risk of not creating a tight ring around the encirclement was that Soviet troops would escape through gaps and either rejoin their comrades behind the lines or wreak havoc in the German rear as partisans. Moreover, some of these major pockets were so large that they held major transportation hubs within them and had to be taken quickly for the invasion to continue. And you could even arguably take a third view. I have not read this one, but I think you could argue it that the requirements for at all securing the pockets in any sort of uh, sufficient way was already very high, and that uh, just the responsibility of securing them at all severely limited the capacity of German forces to advance. And therefore, the debate over whether to assign uh, X number of troops to it or Y number of troops to it might have been irrelevant, because even the base number was too high to allow for a uh, concerted further advance. That's, uh, that's debatable, though. Anyway, um, both sides had a good reason to prioritize their points of view, and given the information I had, they could both make reasonable arguments. However, given that even when German forces focused heavily on destroying the Red Army, they were unable to deplete Soviet manpower, I believe that the strategy of destroying the Red Army before taking vital economic areas was inherently flawed when applied against the USSR. While prioritizing the capture of economic resources over destroying enemy forces would have had its own cost, namely the escape of more Soviet troops from the pockets and a stronger partisan movement, it would have let the Germans seize important areas and preempt Soviet reinforcements and uh, kind of not allow them to set up stronger defenses. I believe, and I believe there is good evidence, that this would have increased Germany's gains against the USSR, although I don't think that this change along with altered the final result of Operation Barbarossa. It is in my opinion that the fundamental flaw of Barbarossa was based on German failures and inadequacies in manpower, logistics, and industrial capabilities. In terms of manpower, Germany was in a severely strained position. Germany lost about 2 million men in the First World War, and an additional 500,000 civilians. More important for the Second World War, the birth rate in Germany during this time, uh, the First World War, plummeted and post-war economic woes and general instability kept it low into the first part of the 1920s. The people born in this period, the late 1910s and early 1920s, would have been prime age for fighting in the Second World War and there was a severe lack of these people in Germany. In comparison, the countries that would be part of the Soviet Union had a much higher birth rate than Germany during World War I and experienced a less extreme drop during and after the war which is in itself pretty remarkable given the utter devastation the former Russian Empire experienced. If you take it from the beginning of the First World War to the very end of the Russian Civil War, you're looking at almost 10 years of constant conflict. And it's remarkable that the birth rate stayed as high as it did. Germany not only lacked manpower, but it was trying to do too much with the limited resources that it had. Germany was attempting to have an extremely large military, be an industrial powerhouse, and maintain some semblance of autarky, that is to say, minimal reliance on foreign uh, imports. So that entailed a lot of uh, domestic labor that could have arguably been done or substituted for by imports, which the Germans, like I said, didn't want to do. This trifecta was tenuously maintained during peacetime But once the war started and the needs of the military rapidly expanded, the balance of labor could only be maintained if soldiers were used in short campaigns, quickly demobilized, and sent back to work in the factories. This proved possible against Poland and France, but the five and a half months long Operation Barbarossa deprived factories of labor and would eventually lead Germany to employ massive quantities of slave labor. During Barbarossa, this lack of manpower manifested as an inability to replace losses. Even those German units that were tactically superior to their Soviet counterparts were slowly attrited by unceasing combat until they were shambling messes, shadows of their former selves. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the Ostheer rotted in the field. Even if Germany had enough troops, they lacked the industrial capacity to properly arm them. Despite Germany's vast rearmament program, it still had major problems meeting production requirements, especially for some of the more expensive and advanced equipment needed for Blitzkrieg warfare. Many of these deficits were made up for, at least temporarily, by seizing weapons from their defeated enemies. A quarter of the German tanks that began Operation Barbarossa were actually Czech and had either been seized by the Germans or had been produced in Czech factories after annexation in early 1939. A much greater proportion of the trucks the Germans were using for Barbarossa were captured from the French and British during the Battle of France. In a very real sense, Barbarossa would not have been possible without this pillaged equipment. And this is to say nothing of the fact that the occupation troops that Germany were using were largely supplied with captured weaponry. What this meant during Barbarossa was that units, especially those that were uh, based on armor or were motorized, could not really be replenished. At least not well enough. In particular, Germany had practically no ability to replace trucks. Reinforcements in preparation for Operation Typhoon replaced maybe half of tank losses, but at most 3% of truck losses. The German solution to this was either consolidating units together, as say taking two weak units to make one normal strength unit. Uh, poaching trucks and other vehicles from other units or simply dealing with the fact that their tank forces would now become vulnerable from lack of infantry or that their motorized infantry forces would just be infantry. But even if Germany had enough men, and even if they had enough weaponry, they wouldn't have had the logistical capacity to deliver them all, to manage all that. Germany's motor vehicle industry was poorly developed, which is why they were so reliant on captured vehicles so German logistics were largely based on train and horse transport. In Western Europe, with its dense railroad networks, this was a workable solution if it was suboptimal and inflexible. But the situation was quite different in Eastern Europe, where there were often only a few major rail lines for large areas. Soviet rail gauge was also incompatible for German train cars, so it had to be converted as quickly as possible by special teams. And between Red Army. Uh, sabotage between partisans, simple breakdowns, and just a lack of rail stock, the railroads were insufficient to supply the German force for Operation Barbarossa. And in fact, the strain put on it resulted in accidents or breakdowns that brought whole logistics chains to a screeching halt. German horses tend to be poorly suited for the Soviet climate and terrain, and of course, were far too slow to support a motorized army. Uh, a logistics unit that moves at three miles an hour doesn't work. For supplying a unit that moves at 15 miles an hour. It's simple as that. So, Germany was facing a situation where it lacked the manpower to replace its losses, lacked the equipment to appropriately support the troops it did have, and lacked the logistic capability to get the equipment it had to the troops it had. That the Germans got so far was the product of German tactical proficiency and gross Soviet errors and failures. Turning to the Soviets, The pre-war structures and State of the Red Army were disastrous, and directly contributed to not just the initial disasters the USSR withstood, but the serious knock-on effects that lasted until the end of Barbarossa. In general, Soviet forces were completely unprepared for war. Both ground and air forces were largely undermanned, had poor training, and were undersupplied and under-equipped. Soviet forces were also located far too close to the German-Soviet border, which left them vulnerable to crippling German attacks. The resulting destruction of these first echelon Soviet forces allowed Germans to quickly capture the Soviet borderlands and began advancing into vital territory. To buy themselves time, the Red Army was compelled to launch attack after attack, slowing German forces but at a tremendous cost to themselves. It took months until Soviet forces had recovered enough to halt the Germans, by which time the Soviets had withstood almost unimaginable casualties and lost huge swaths of vital territory. Had the Soviet forces been positioned further behind the border, they likely would have been able to avoid some of these initial encirclements, putting up a stronger front and allowing uh, reinforcements to mobilize and create a solid defense that could minimize their losses. This would have reduced casualties and likely resulted in less land loss, and I hope this isn't coming across as me playing backseat general This is fairly basic strategy. When you consider the situation Soviet generals were thrust into, many of their decisions make more sense. Still, the high command was plagued by a refusal to withdraw until it was too late and a stubborn insistence on attacking even when not practical. Stalin was active in creating and encouraging these problems, and he put extreme pressure on his generals to comply. The failure of Soviet leadership to recognize when to withdraw in a timely fashion resulted in huge losses. Just Kiev alone, which was absolutely a product of this stubborn refusal to withdraw, cost upwards of 600,000 men and effectively forfeited Ukraine to the Germans. On a different point, I want to attack the idea that the Soviets relied entirely on numbers to win against the Germans, or that the Soviets deliberately made use of so-called human wave tactics. This idea is quite popular among the casually interested, but does not hold up the scrutiny, and the reality is far more nuanced. First. Let's get out of the way that during Barbarossa, Soviets actually very rarely held broad numerical superiority against the Germans. On June 22nd, total Axis forces participating in Barbarossa outnumbered Soviet forces in the Western military districts, that is to say who they were directly facing off against, by at least a third, maybe 40 to 50 percent. And this continued as the invasion began, Soviet forces took far higher casualties, so naturally the relative balance of forces tipped in favor of the Germans in its early months. When Operation Typhoon began, Army Group Center outnumbered its Soviet counterparts by 50%, and it was not until December 1st that the Red Army achieved numerical superiority along the whole front, and even then it was by a factor of about 25%, so hardly overwhelming. In reality, Rather than creating great masses of troops that outnumber the Germans on the front, Barbarossa saw the Soviets being able to repeatedly deploy forces to slow the German advance and wear them down. So the image you should have is not one of German forces blowing through uh, Red Army units uh, that are three or four times their size, but an image of an ever-present Soviet defense constantly haranguing the Germans, wearing them down battle by battle until they simply could not continue. So as we've seen, Germany lacked the resources on every level to appropriately conduct Operation Barbarossa, and any belief that Germany could succeed at such a grand undertaking was premised on racial ideology, incorrect although not wholly baseless assumptions about Soviet weakness, and severe time pressure. During the invasion, German success was predicated on their tactical superiority and taking advantage of Soviet weaknesses. But German forces did not have any sort of reliable or sustainable way of maintaining their forces and were relying on their enemy collapsing, or being far weaker than they actually were. On the Soviet side, the Red Army was in an extremely rough state and in a very dangerous position. Soviet efforts throughout much of Barbarossa were desperate affairs attempting to slow the German advance conducted by officers and commanders who were often some mix of incompetent and overly stubborn, and who were leading poorly trained and poorly equipped men. The Red Army ultimately triumphed in Operation Barbarossa because of their capacity to raise and recreate units at a breathtaking rate, the utterly tenacious fighting of Soviet troops, the skill of a selective cadre of junior commanders, and the cold logic and strategic mindset of certain members of the high command. This is in addition to the massive industrial strength of the USSR and the way in which the Soviet government managed to unite the entire apparatus of society to further the war effort. In writing this analysis, I came to realize that there was simply no way I could do a full-scale, thorough analysis of Operation Barbarossa in one episode, really part of one episode. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm asking you, if you have any questions about Barbarossa, uh, be it the actual conduct of the invasion, the planning of the invasion, or the strategic context behind it, to please email me at hfstevens at You might notice that's a different email. I'm hoping it's shorter, it's easier to remember, so many more people will email. That's hfstevens, stevens Stevens is s-t-e-v-e-n-s, at uchicago.edu. I'm hoping that uh, you guys will write in to me with your questions, and I'll certainly send you an email response back to the best of my ability, but if I get enough questions, I'll also make an episode kind of answering them, kind of an interesting Q&A. I'm also still planning on making episodes for this podcast on the Holocaust and war crimes during Barbarossa, the partisan movement during Barbarossa, and some of Germany's allied forces that were helping. But these episodes will be a bit less frequent than they've been, though hopefully much more consistent. Expect one of these episodes every two weeks or so. In the meantime, I'm going to start working on my next podcast about the Second Sino-Japanese War, which I'm really excited about and I really hope you're going to like. When that's further along, I'll post something here directing you to where you can listen. If you want to stop listening after this episode, thank you very much for taking time out of your life to check out this podcast. If you intend on listening to subsequent episodes or my next podcast, I hope you'll really like what i come up with. Either way, I'd like to thank everyone. Again, if you have any suggestions for bonus episodes, please email me at hfstevens, stevens with a V, at uchicago, that's U, then Chicago, like the city, dot edu. One more time. That's hfstevens at uchicago.edu. My name is Harry, and I'll talk to you soon.